If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, Genesis 1 through 3. And after I read this, I'm going to flip over to John 1. So if you want to grab that one too, you can, or you can just listen. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. John 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think this morning about proclamation, um, God, I think that so many of us think of proclamation really as what happens on Sunday morning, and it's something that the preacher does. But God, your word is clear that proclamation is not only the task of every believer, but it is necessary for the salvation of anyone. Father, remind us this morning that if we are here and we call ourselves Christians, we are only here because someone proclaimed the gospel to us. And Father, I pray that as we look at proclamation this morning, you would... Make us faithful proclaimers of the Word of God. Lord, change our hearts now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. These these terms here, formless and void. I mean, these are verses that have been just debated and debated throughout the centuries of the church. But I think what we can basically deduce from this passage is that the earth, there was some sort of substance that God had created. Okay, Matter is not eternal, but it was without form. It was void of any sort of shape or usefulness. And we have this picture here that, that Moses gives us as he writes this, Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is before the first day of creation, right? Where God said, let there be light. So there's things that are existing. Water, some sort of water. And the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. So we see that first, the Spirit of God is active. It's active over an empty, dark substance. And then along comes the Word of God. When the Word of God shows up on the scene, what happens? Light. With one word. Let there be light. And light is created. We see in the opening verses of Genesis the the theology that's going to undergird what we believe about proclamation. We're going to talk about proclamation this morning. And we cannot separate the work of proclamation from the work of the Spirit of God. That's going to be the main point of this message. That even in the opening chapters of the Scriptures, we have an example, but not an example. We have the foundation for all of ministry. Why we do what we do. Why we proclaim what we proclaim. Because without proclamation, there is no light. And without light, there's no life. Because we just read in John chapter 1, who is this proclamation? Who is this word that shows up on the scene in the beginning? You have the Spirit of God hovering, and then the word shows up. Who is the word? It's Jesus. 
And when Jesus shows up on the scene, immediately, out of darkness comes light. Out of emptiness and void and formless comes something that's useful. Something that can be reshaped and remade. And that's proclamation. When the Word of God meets the Spirit of God, we have light. The commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way, Observe that at first there was nothing desirable to be seen, for the world was without form and void. It was confusion and emptiness. In like manner, the work of grace in the soul is a new creation. And in a graceless soul, one that is not born again, there is disorder, there is confusion in every evil work. It is empty of all good, for it is without God. It is dark. It is darkness itself. This is our condition by nature, till almighty grace works a change in us. So we have here exactly what happens to our hearts at the moment of conversion. Now you might be saying, okay, Caleb, that, that sounds great, right? I mean, clearly, you know, the creation account, surely this isn't really what this is saying. Well, you know, do we see anything else in Scripture that would help us think about this more clearly? And I think we do. And so we're going to go immediately to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to be here for a little bit, and then we're going to go to, to uh, 1 Peter. And these are going to be our main two texts. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And there's supposed to be some PowerPoint, but... I may or that may or may not make any sense up there. Um, I wasn't sure exactly how this would come out. So, Second Corinthians chapter three, starting in verse twelve. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the, the Lord is the Spirit. Okay, so here's the Spirit. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, this is the unbeliever's case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a lot, okay? I'm just going to break it down like this. Verses 12 through 18, we see... Paul talking about the ministry of the Spirit. Verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Okay, Unbelievers, before we come to faith in Christ, we have a veil over our faces. We are not seeing things rightly. We are what is talked about in Genesis 1.1 and 1.2. We are empty, we are void, we are without form, we are not useful. We are, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, under the wrath of God. But when Christ enters, when Christ shows up, the veil is lifted. And where Christ enters, the Spirit also enters, right? Because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And the Lord, as Paul says, is the Spirit. 
So we have the Spirit, right? Here's this, uh, this picture again. The Spirit is moving. This is the ministry of the Spirit. And then Paul sort of backtracks and he says, well, how does this actually happen? And that's what he does in verse 4. Starting or on chapter 4, verse 4. In their case, he goes back to the unbelievers. Okay, so in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing. Now, what does he keep them from seeing? Light. The light. For what we proclaim, verse 5, here's proclamation, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So they proclaim Jesus as Lord, and then, verse 6, what happens? You have the Spirit, you have proclamation of Jesus, and verse 6, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. He echoes right back to Genesis 1-3. Right back. He says, our salvation, what happens at salvation is God calling light out of darkness. The same God who said, let there be light at the beginning of creation has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is absolutely necessary. This is key. The proclamation of the gospel is necessary for anyone's salvation. This is foundational to the Christian life. This is why Redeemer Church has built this in to our very core values, right? The core values, the things that are central to this church. The proclamation of the gospel. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to spend our, the rest of our time in, in uh, 1 Peter 2. And I want to ask four questions of this text. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 9. Read uh, 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. Here we go again, back to creation. Him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So I want to ask four questions of this text. First of all, we're talking about proclamation. Okay, Kayla, we get it. Proclamation is important. What do we proclaim? What's the content of our proclamation? Do we just walk around just sort of regurgitating traditional Christian lingo? Once saved, always saved. ABCs, admit, believe, confess. Uh, do we proclaim political issues, abortion, uh, you know, whatever, pick a political issue. These are things that come up all the time, right? These are things that we proclaim. What does verse 9 say? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's a little helpful. Because we've got to know what the word excellencies means, right? I mean, if we're going to say, yeah, I proclaim the excellencies of God, well, what does that mean? Because you can define God pretty much however you want to say, well, that's excellent, and I'm going to proclaim that. But what does this word actually mean, excellencies? Well, it, it could mean basically moral goodness, right? God's moral goodness. The fact that God is, is, is perfectly holy, but on top of that, it can also mean his wonderful and excellent and mighty acts. So you, when you read the Old Testament, you see this all over the place. You see the, the Israelites echoing back to the Exodus. Because the Exodus was the defining event in the history of Israel, where God delivered his people from the rule of the Egyptians, and they left and God delivered them. He parted the Red Sea. He gave them water from a rock. He gave them manna from heaven. All of this was the def this defined who Israel was, the Exodus. 
So as you read the Old Testament, you see them saying, this is the same God who delivered us from the Egyptians, the same God. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and compassionate. You know, all these things, they're echoing back to the Exodus. Because they're they're saying, look, look at the excellencies. Look at the mighty things God has done for his people. And so when we proclaim, what do we proclaim? We proclaim the excellencies of God. So, on this side of Christ, what do we proclaim? What is the most excellent, sound like Bill and Ted here, the most excellent (laughs) adventure, right? Um, What is the... What is like the defining excellent event in in the Christian in, in the whole all of redemptive history? It's the incarnation. Christ coming to earth. God becoming flesh. Coming to to live a perfect life, to save his people from their sins. And so what we proclaim, the content of our proclamation must be Christ. It must. We cannot say we're proclaiming Unless we're talking about Christ. Okay, this, this is key because this is what makes what's called lifestyle evangelism or, what's another word they use for it? Um, friendship evangelism. This is what makes it so powerless, really. Um, and I'm not saying that, okay, I'll hopefully define what I mean there. But there's this big push, it's been going on for a while, to sort of, um, reduce confrontation. And the way you reduce confrontation is you don't really talk about what you believe. You just have to live it out. Okay? So as a Christian, this would sound like this. Well, I don't really, you know, I don't really talk about my faith or talk about Jesus that much. I'm just going to live a good life, you know, be just and fair and, and nice to people. That's really what they mean is be nice to people. Um, and then through those actions, they will see that I'm a Christian. Well, what we're seeing here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is the, is the opposite of that, right? We see that the proclamation of the excellencies of God is the power behind, um, behind the Christian message. In fact, what we see in Romans chapter 1, 16, is the Apostle Paul saying... Uh, I'm not ashamed of the what? The gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Um, So if we want evangelism that is powerful, we must be faithful proclaimers of Jesus, of this gospel, right? The, The gospel of Christ coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying on the cross for the sins of his people, and then um, being raised from the grave. And when we think about lifestyle evangelism, I mean, there's just no way. It's not even logical to think that someone is going to look at your life and say, oh, judging from the fact that Chet is nice to me, I deduce that Jesus is Lord and it's only through faith and repentance that I will come to know, to be reconciled to the Father, right? That's just not possible, not going to happen. Um, because the, the makeup of, the, of our faith is actual historical facts, right? You can't live in a way, like you can't do things with your hands and have attitudes that will help people understand historical facts. That's just not, it's a good apologetic, right? So we, after you proclaim something, the gospel, and then you come along and you are, uh, loving and you're caring for people and you're compassionate, then they see, oh, okay, that faith he was talking about, now it seems more real, okay? And so it's a good apologetic, it's a good defense of your faith to show that your faith is real, but it's not the content of what we proclaim. You cannot, are you going to live perfectly anyway? I mean, who lives perfectly? If you're going to say, yeah, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm just going to love people and uh, treat people well, well, are you always going to love people perfectly? Are you going to treat people the way they should be treated all the time? That's just a legalism like anything else. Saying, I'm going to do this perfectly so that when I do it perfectly, they'll know that I'm a Christian, right? That's not the content of what we proclaim. The content of what we proclaim is the excellencies of God. 
more specifically, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that's what the rest of the letter is about anyway in, in 1 Peter. Um, so, what is the content of our proclamation? Excellencies of God. Namely, the gospel, right? Second question, what is the source of our proclamation? Okay, we get it, Caleb. The content of our proclamation is Jesus. It's the gospel. How do we know the gospel? Like, what is our source? What do we go to to understand the gospel? Well, it's pretty logical, right? I mean, if if we're going to talk about Jesus, where do we go to find out about Jesus? Should we go to religious studies classes? Could be helpful, right? I mean, some of them are are fine, I'm sure. Um, Are they the definitive source on who Jesus is? No. No, they're not. Do we go to, here's a good question, do, do we go to the Gospel of Thomas? No. Oh, absolutely not. No. No. Can the Gospel of Thomas be helpful Maybe. in some way? Yeah, sure, it might be. You know, it's a historical document. Um, so what has been accepted by the church throughout all generations of the church as the definitive source on the information and revelation of Jesus Christ? The Bible. Old Testament and New Testament, right? Because remember what we saw in 2 Corinthians. If you still have your finger there, let's go back. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I forgot to highlight this, but I'll do it now. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 14 um, says this, Their minds were hardened, talking about the Israelites. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Notice what we have here. We don't have necessarily New Testament being read. He's talking about when the Old Covenant is read. The veil can still be removed. So we don't just go to the, the New Testament. This is, this is a, a, a great way for us to think about um, how Christ is revealed in all of Scripture. So here we have the Word of God being presented. The Word of God in the Old Covenant, even. When the Old Covenant is read, the veil can still be removed because then he says some will turn to Christ. And when that happens, the Lord moves in, the Lord's Spirit, and there's freedom there, right? So what do we proclaim? What is our source of proclamation? It's the Word of God. The Word of God. The Bible, right? So let me ask you, as you think about your conversations with people, what is your source for proclamation? I mean, what is it usually? Do you sort of rely on your own wisdom, maybe? Maybe try to steer... I mean, I've caught myself doing this. You know, you're, talk, you're in the midst of people talking about, um, you know, faith, religious things, and, and you don't really want to get to the gospel yet, you know, because... Either, you know, maybe they're not, they're not quite there yet, or, or maybe um, you, know, you just don't want to hit them that hard yet and say, repent and believe. So you just sort of steer the conversation to maybe some political issue, some social issue, and just sort of harp on that for a little bit. Man, I've done that before. That's not the source of our proclamation. Um, the source of our proclamation is the Word of God because Genesis 1, 1 through 3, what do we have? The Spirit and the Word. And when the Word shows up, the Spirit changes hearts. Remember, that is foundational. The Word and the Spirit must be present. Now, which of those can we control? 
the word, right? We can control what we proclaim. We don't control the Holy Spirit. We don't know who the Holy Spirit is working on or hovering over. So we proclaim indiscriminately to all, right? And those on whom the Spirit is working, God calls out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is foundational, guys. If we don't get this, if we are not faithful proclaimers, the church will not be built. third question I want to ask is, what is the form of our proclamation? And so I've just got a list here of, of just different ways. Because it's, it's easy to, to sit here and think, all right, you know, we get this, Caleb, uh, proclamation, preaching of the gospel. And then so we always just associate this with what happens on Sunday mornings, right? So preachers are called to be proclaimers. We can all go home and go back to doing whatever we are doing before because we're not preachers, right? Or most of us are not preachers. But, you know, the Bible is, is clear that proclamation happens, should happen all the time. First Peter, to, you know, in, in the passage we just read, he doesn't make any distinction. In fact, he, he says, he's pretty much talking about everybody. He says, you, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, that all of us, the church, may proclaim the excellencies. So we're all called to do this, right? We're all called to proclaim. So let's talk about some forms. What are some forms of proclamation? What I mean by that are like, what are some context or some specific ways or, uh, well, let's just talk about it. Preaching, first one, right? This is probably the most common one mentioned in Scripture. You know, uh, in the New Testament, we have the Old Testament prophets just preaching, preaching, preaching constantly. Then you have John the Baptist coming on the scene at the beginning of the New Testament, shows up. What's he doing? Mark chapter 1 tells us he comes preaching repentance through baptism, right? Preaching repentance. Then right after that, Jesus shows up. What's he doing? Mark 1 tells us he comes preaching repentance and faith. And then, after Jesus ascends to the Father, the day of Pentecost comes, Holy Spirit, there's Holy Spirit, shows up on the scene. Apostles are converted. What do they immediately start doing? Preaching. Preaching, preaching, preaching is always the way that God, not always, it's primarily the way that God builds His church. When John the Baptist preaches, people's hearts are turned from themselves, from the Old Testament law, to the coming Messiah. When Jesus preaches, they're turned from the Old Testament covenant, the Old Testament law, to Jesus as the person, uh, as the, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. When the apostles preach, people's hearts are turned from dead and lifeless to the person and work of Jesus. And the church is created. So we see once again that the activity of the Holy Spirit is contingent upon the proclamation of the gospel. Right? Because the Spirit, the work of the Word and the Spirit is how the church is born. That's what the whole book of Acts is about. The mighty works of the Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. So preaching. What about teaching? Teaching, right? Another way of proclamation. So you say, well, I'll never preach. I mean, I'm not really a, a preacher in the traditional sense. Well, can you teach? Can you teach in a community group? Can you teach in a life transformation group? Can you teach your children the gospel at home? This is, these are all ways of, pro, of proclaiming. Through the teaching of the word, we proclaim. Rebuking. It's not a fun one, right? But... You know, rebuking one another. This is a way of proclaiming the gospel to one another. When you see a brother or a sister in sin, and you confront them about that, and you say, you know, um, those words that you just said there about this person, that was not pleasing to the Lord, um, you, you need to repent of that, and 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 have and, and trust Christ, and and. Seek for change in that area of your life. That's not fun. That's not fun to be rebuked, and it's not fun to do the rebuking. But through this process, we proclaim the gospel to one another, right? Because no one, 
A proper way to rebuke is not to say, you know those words you just said there? You shouldn't say those things. Repent. That's not really the whole story, right? Because we're supposed to leave one another with hope. The hope is that repent, have faith in Christ, seek for change because Christ has bought you. He's paid for that sin, right? Let's rejoice together. It's encouraging. It's, it's proclaiming something. It's, it's always gospel-centered, okay? Rebuking. This should be, I just want to you know, challenge us on this, rebuking one another really should be a common thing among us. Um, I mean, I, it's just not, you know? Well, at least I haven't seen it. In, in, in my life. And so, um, you know, that's something just to think about. You know, how, when's the last time you were rebuked for sin? And think about when's the last time you sinned? <laughs> right? Uh, when's the last time you rebuked someone for their sin? And when was the last time you saw someone sin that needed to be rebuked? This is a, an area of proclamation that I think we often overlook. Encouraging, right? This goes right along with rebuking. We never leave someone just, uh, you know, in a hopeless state. Like, you should not have said that, and then just leave it at that. It's, uh, you know, let's turn and and and, and pray and ask for forgiveness and, and move on. Uh, be encouraging to one another. Everyday conversations, right? This is a form of proclamation. Every conversation that you have throughout the day. Be thinking, what can I say in this conversation to proclaim the gospel? I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you have to like give an entire, uh, you know, systematic theology of what happened in redemptive history. You know, every single conversation of the day. No, it just means that the words that you're saying. You know, how how can you give glory to Christ in these words? How can you point people to Christ? How can you point people to the greatness and the excellency of God? How can we proclaim in our everyday conversations? All of this would be included under discipleship. Um, I just put it up there as a separate separate category. But that's all discipleship. See, preaching, teaching, rebuking, encouraging everyday conversations. It's all included in, in discipleship. And then as a church, think about baptism. The Lord has given us two... Um, ordinances or sacraments, however you want to say that, um, that we observe as a church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? These are ways, these are manifestations or outward displays of the inward grace that we have received. So when we observe baptism, we are proclaiming something. You know, baptism until recently, was always done outside, in the open, in the public. And so it was always, up until modern era, a way of openly and unashamedly identifying yourself with Christ. You are proclaiming something. I was dead, now I'm raised to new life. I've been washed in the water, spirit hovering over the waters. See, we have this imagery coming in, even in baptism. Spirit over the waters, raised to new life. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I mean, all of this, see how it all ties together? Even in the, in the, in the, even in the elements of baptism. The Lord's Supper. What does Paul tell us? What does Jesus tell us when, when we observe the Lord's Supper? When you do this, you proclaim my death. Right? Paul says... Um, how does he say it? Uh, do this in remembrance of me, for as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So even in the act of the Lord's Supper, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming something. Did you know that in the early church, uh, right after the time of the apostles, even during the time of the apostles, they were accused of being cannibals because they claimed to eat I mean, it's imagery, right? It's, they're speaking metaphorically, but they're claiming, yeah, this is the body and blood of Jesus. And so one of the reasons they were persecuted was because people took that literally and they called them cannibals. So they're cannibals, right? They have these love feasts where they get together and they love one another and then they eat supposed flesh and blood of Jesus. That's important because 
they're doing this in public once again, right? People are seeing them observe the Lord's Supper. So when we observe the Lord's Supper, think about what that does to those in our midst who are not part of us or uh, who have not, um, who are not believers. When they see Christians observing the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the death of Christ until He returns. It's a way. It's a way to always be proclaiming as a, as a corporate body. Does that make sense? Think about prayer. That's not. A, I, I don't think I added up there, but prayer. I think Chet mentioned it earlier. Uh, prayer is a way of proclamation. Um, singing is a proclamation. These are all just different forms, right, of, of proclaiming. And so the point of going through this list is just to help you see that your life is full of proclamation, whether you realize it or not. In fact, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, your life is full of proclamation. In fact, Jim said this last week. He said, worship is proclamation. What you worship is what you will proclaim. So what are you worshiping? What are you proclaiming with your life? Okay? Even though you may never stand up and preach in front of a congregation, you are still called to proclaim. Proclamation and worship are basically the same thing. We worship or we proclaim what we worship. Which, another, another point to that is, I mean, this is why some of us are so inconsistent, right? Because we know we have to proclaim the gospel, so we sort of do. But then our lives proclaim something completely different. And people see that, man. I mean, this is why I said earlier that your life, your actions, are a good, can be a good apologetic for your proclamation, if they match. Or, it could just turn people away from the gospel, because they see that what you are proclaiming and the way you're living your life are completely different. So, you know, are you calling people to, to, um, you know, give up addictions? Are you calling people to, to, um, stop living a certain way? Are you know, these things that you're including in, in your proclamation? But are you, are you engaged in those activities? When you confront, when you tell people at, at work that they shouldn't be milking the time clock? Or do you milk the time clock? Do you, uh, when you, when you talk to people about illegally downloading, uh, music? Do you illegally download music? And what are some things that, that you do that you're proclaiming with your life that you're not proclaiming with your mouth? The last question that I want to ask is what is the hope? I think I put hope? No, I put goal. Darn it. What is the goal of our proclamation? Or what is the hope? Like, what's the point, right? What are we striving for in proclamation? Think about Genesis 1. What happens? Spirit's hovering. The Word of God shows up. Bam. Light. That's our goal. Our goal is to see light created. Light out of darkness. Uh, form out of formless. Life out of emptiness and darkness. That's our goal. We, we, we proclaim with the hope that the light switch would be turned on. Now this is very humbling, right? Because we don't control that. Remember what we control? What do we control? The proclamation, the word. We control how the word goes out. If we're faithfully going to proclaim it, we don't control. We have no control over the work of the Spirit. So we pray. This is why prayer is so important. We pray. We, we plead with God, Lord, save this person. As, as I proclaim the gospel today in conversations, as I teach, as I, as I preach, as I rebuke this person in their sin, may I do it faithfully. But God, I plead with you by your spirit to change their hearts. Turn the light switch on. Only he can do it. That's our hope as we proclaim. 
for unbelievers, what about believers? Well, our hope is that they would be strengthened and that the church would be edified as we proclaim. Because remember, the gospel isn't just for unbelievers. In fact, if that's what you think about the gospel, you probably don't believe it. Because it's not just John 3.16 and it's done, right? I mean, I was, I was raised sort of that way. At least that's what I absorbed was the gospel is for those who are not believers. And once you believe the gospel, I didn't really know anything after that. You're like, I don't know what's supposed to happen after that because uh, you're good to go, right? You're a Christian. That's just the end of the story, I guess. But it's not, man. The gospel is central to our lives. If you are not proclaiming the gospel to yourself first, you will never proclaim it rightfully to anyone else. The gospel needs to be proclaimed to ourselves constantly. This is why the gospel proclamation is for the strengthening of believers and the edification of the church. Because we always need to hear the gospel. Because every moment, Satan and his demons are tempting us to not believe the gospel. Even today, as I was sitting here, or standing here singing songs, I was thinking... I just started not even consciously dwelling. I was consciously dwelling on it, but I didn't even know that it was really happening until afterwards that I'm not worthy to preach. Like, I don't even want to do this. I just started thinking about all of my sin and just the things I, I, you know, even I've done this week, these thoughts I've had and words I've said, I'm like, I'm not even worthy to do this. What, what am I doing? Because that's always going to be there. We're always going to be tempted to to disbelieve the gospel. So even then I just had to stop and say, no. Well, yeah, I'm not worthy, first of all, but it doesn't mean that I haven't been called to do this and it doesn't mean that Christ's death is is less, um, that that my sin has not been atoned for. It has. My sin is paid for. I have new life in Christ. I've been reconciled to God. I must proclaim this. And just like that, it's like, man, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Let's do it. You know? Because I preach the gospel to myself, man. That's how you do it. I love it. I mean, it's the only thing. I mean, if I didn't do that in the, during the day, and some days I don't, and man, it's a, it's a horrible day. It's just disbelief. But the hope of our proclamation is that believers would be strengthened and the church would be edified. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 puts it like this. To them, that's us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim. We warn everyone and we teach everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal, to present one another mature in Christ. We had a great discussion Tuesday night on the gospel, uh, uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, right? Uh, because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so this is like the thesis statement of Romans. Everything else in Romans is brought in, I think, to support that statement. But So we had this discussion, right? And at the end of the discussion, we just kind of wrapped it up saying this, and I think this is important as we sort get ready to end this time too. What's the point of all of this? The point is to, as we preach the gospel to one another, we proclaim um, the excellencies of God to one another, we are not just doing that to sort of, um, I don't know how to say this. Well, the reason we do that is because... If you don't finish strong, what I mean by that is, if you don't persist in your faith and persevere to the end, and if you deny Christ today, tomorrow, ten years from now, and you persist in that unbelief, and you die, the scripture is clear, you were never part of God's family in the first place. So we do this in order to sustain our lives. That's why this is important. If we are not proclaiming the gospel to one another and rebuking one another and teaching one another and observing the Lord's Supper together, which is a means of grace, strong means of grace in our lives, if we are not doing these things, some of us, if not all of us, will fall away. And when we fall away, First John tells us, we prove 
that we were never part of God in the first place. Our eternal destiny rests on proclamation. We must be faithful proclaimers. We must hold one another to this faith lest we fall away. There's one more thing I want to address before we end. And it is, what about the man on the island? You're telling me that the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel must exist for anyone to know Christ. For a lot of people, the question immediately arises, what about someone who's never heard the gospel? They've never heard. What if there's a man on an island? And let me tell you, there's a lot of men on a lot of islands who have never heard the gospel. Even now. Some of them are dying, will die today. Many will die today without ever hearing the gospel. What happens? When I was a kid, I distinctly remember someone telling me that God will judge that person based on the light that they have received. So, if they've never heard the gospel, then that means when they get to heaven, God will have a different standard by which to judge them apart from the person and work of Christ Okay, so that doesn't really apply. It's just, so whatever light they have had in their life, you know, someone sort of, you know, gave them some moral standards to live by. How did they do with that? So based on how they did with that, God will decide, you know, sort of where they're at. Let me just say that's, that's not, that's not biblical. That's not what Scripture teaches. What have we seen Scripture teaches? The Holy Spirit is hovering hovering over the hearts and lives of some people. And when the Word of God, the proclamation of the Word of God comes and meets the Spirit over that person's heart, new light is created. That's the only way it's going to happen. How does Jesus put it? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, That ought to really, that ought to hit us hard. Because like I said, there are thousands upon thousands of men and women and children who have never heard the gospel. Which means that what I'm saying is, today, when they die, they will spend eternity in hell. That's a real, literal place. The proclamation of the gospel must be extended to the nations. It must. That's why we sang the song you said this morning. Ask and I'll give the nations to you. That's the cry of my heart. Is that the cry of your heart? Do you really cry out to God that he would send laborers into the harvest? Into the work of missionary activity across the world? What about you? Are you willing to go? What about the hundreds, if not thousands, of people that you come into contact with every, every day, every semester of this, of this school year that have never heard the gospel? We have how many international students? 6,000, right? At least here on campus, 6,000 international students. Most of them have probably never heard the gospel. Most of them. I'm willing to bet most of them. The man on the island isn't on the island. <laughs> he's right here. He's in, he's in Champaign-Urbana. So who's going to proclaim? Who's going to be faithful with the message, with the content of the gospel? Our goal is not to win arguments or grow our church. It is to see others worship the one true and living God. That's the goal of our proclamation. So let me just ask you, are you faithfully proclaiming? Or a better question maybe is what are you faithfully proclaiming? Because you're proclaiming something. When someone looks at your life, they're saying, this is what's important to her. This is what's important to him. What will people say is important to you? When they read your life 
If we were to have a script of your words even throughout the day, what would it say? What would be the general point of your conversations? Is it seasoned with the gospel of Christ, Paul says in Colossians 4? Seasoned with salt? Or is it dry and lifeless and empty and void? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us a tremendous task. Father, you have given us an impossible task. But you have not left us without a helper. So God, I pray this morning that you would make us faithful proclaimers. God, I pray first of all that those in this room would be convicted of sin right now. Father, we know as we sit here, we are not worthy to be called children of God. Whether we are or we aren't, we know we are not worthy. Father, we can all think back, even on this week, of specific ways that we have rebelled against your law. We have forsaken the covenant with you. But God, even as we feel that, we know that that's not the whole story. We know because someone proclaimed to us last year, five years ago, 20 years ago, someone proclaimed to us that there's hope in Jesus, that we can find forgiveness for our sins. We can find redemption, that this wrath that we are under, it doesn't have to abide forever. But through Christ, we can be reconciled to God. Father, I pray that that would take root in our lives this morning. And when that takes root, we would become faithful proclaimers. Father, even Jesus says that out of of the heart, the mouth speaks, Father. May our words reflect accurately what is going on in our hearts. May we have gospel-centered words. May we proclaim the gospel with our lives. Father, let this be so of us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.